Welcome back. Say hello on Twitter at Richard Serrett, the website strangeplanet.ca. Chilling footage has captured what is claimed to be a ghost passing inches from a woman as she sings a tuneful melody. The man recorded his sister belting out a tune when they were home together, but seconds into the clip, a disturbing presence is seen emerging from the young woman's right and passing behind her. It's not seen emerging on her other side in the video. It's taken at the sibling's home in Granadero Bigomia, uh, Bigoria, rather, near Rosario, Argentina. The siblings only saw the eerie apparition when they watched the footage back. As the property is opposite the graveyard, locals are convinced the building is haunted. You can check out the video for yourself. That's in the uh, news section up at coasttocoastam.com. All right, let's get back to some ghost stories with Brendan Schecksneider, the host of Southern Gothic, right here on Coast to Coast AM. Welcome back to Coast to Coast AM. Brendan Schecksneider stays with us, storyteller, podcast host, the Southern Gothic podcast. And uh, let's head back to New Orleans, uh, Brendan. Well, uh, I guess about a half hour northwest of New Orleans. There's a um, an area uh, called the Manchac Wetlands, and there's some some pretty um, thick swamps in that area. Uh, and I suppose if you're a boater, you might want to be careful about um, alligators and submerged logs, which can also pose a serious threat. But there's something else they might need to uh, worry about, and that is the ghost of a voodoo priestess who supposedly haunts the swamp and um, has placed a curse on the area. Tell us about Julia Brown. Absolutely. Well, this is this is a classic uh, South Louisiana story right here, the swamps. You know, Manchac, it is uh, this location. It's about halfway between New Orleans and Baton Rouge. So if you were to, uh, to head out of New Orleans, you just end up on all these long bridges out through the swamp. You're in the middle of nowhere out there, okay? And these used to be just giant, vast cypress forests. That were out there, but unfortunately, a lot of the logging over the years, uh, the early or the late 19th century, early 2000s, they, they, they harvested a lot of this for timber. And there used to be this one city out there. It was called Frenier, and Frenier, it was a, uh, it was made up primarily of German immigrants who had settled out there. They were they were growing cabbage and out in the swamp. Uh, they were harvesting this timber, and they were there for a long time. It was, it was uh, at one point, it was called Schlosserberg. Uh, you know, I should note my name, Schecksneider. This is this is essentially a lot of the folks that, that I'm descended from. It was called the German mm. Coast. Uh, you know, a lot of blonde hair, blue eye type people out there. You know, they they came from a, a Catholic background and everything. But there was this one resident there in Frenier, uh, a woman by the name of Julia Brown who actually, uh, she was given the property by the United States government. Her, her husband, Celestin, uh, he fought in what was called the U.S. Colored Troops during the Civil War. And Julia was born enslaved down in New Orleans. Uh, she married Celestin, and he was given this land out there in the swamp for them to come build a homestead on. You know, so so here we have is we have these these, these two Af- this African American family living out there with all these German immigrants, right? And uh, you know, according to legend, she was a voodoo practitioner at that point in time. Uh, she practiced uh, this thing that the folks there in Frenier didn't really understand whether or not you know she truly did or not. Or we're not positive, but 
we do know that she kind of became the local healer for this community, right? Because this is a very isolated community. There was, there was only two ways to get to Frenier. You could either travel there by boat or you could take a train to get into Frenier, right? So if you got sick or something, you know, it's, you wouldn't want to wait for that to go back down to New Orleans mm. or Baton Rouge. You might just go to Julia for help. Right. And, you know, she, of course, was kind of a midwife over the years as well, delivered the babies there in town and became a beloved member of the community. So folks, they appreciated her. But sometime, this was the early 20th century, uh, her husband passed away. I believe it was sometime around 1910 or so. Uh, and, and at that point in time, whether or not she was just uh, the melancholy from that or something went on with the community, they say that her relationship started to sour with the people, whether she felt taken for granted or who knows why. But they said when they would go out to see Julia at her place, she had this cabin out on the edge of town, out in the swamp in the middle of Manchac. So they go out to see her. Very frequently, she'd be sitting in her chair out on the porch, fiddling with, with a small piece of string or yarn or something. And she'd be singing this song, When I Die. I'll take the whole town with me. Whoa. When I die, <laughs> I'll take the whole town with me. I know, right? So here, here they are. This is a community out in the middle of nowhere in the dark swamp. No electricity or anything. Uh, again, this is a German, blonde-haired, blue-eyed Catholic community who hears this woman that is very exotic to them, who practices a religion they don't understand and helps them singing this song, When I Die the whole town with me. Well, you know, Julia was still human, right? So eventually she did pass away in 1915, to be precise. It was September 28, 1915. And of course, you can imagine some of the folks there wondered, well, what does this mean for our town here? So when she had her funeral two days later, the whole town came. They all piled into this house. Julia's there in her coffin, and everybody is just piled into that place. And whether or not it was because, you know, they delivered their babies, maybe she delivered them, right? Whether she's a beloved member of the community, or they were trying to appease her spirit because they remember what they believed might have been a curse. Everyone came. But little did they realize, since they're so isolated, that there was an immense hurricane that was making landfall down in New Orleans at that point in time. It was about 4 o'clock in the afternoon, and this hurricane was heading, t- tunneling forward towards Frenier. And they were literally in the middle of her funeral when they felt the winds hit the outer bands of the hurricane starting to shake this small, this small building that they're having the funeral in, and the water started coming down. I mean... You can imagine how scary that is, how much these folks are thinking, when I die, I'll take the whole town with me. And the walls are now shaking in the middle of her funeral. So everyone is freaked out. And, of course, they decide they're getting out of this house. And they start to run. And as they leave and the storm is coming down, this this is a giant hurricane. This is the largest hurricane that was recorded prior to named storms. Mm. The storm surge is coming up. The water rose about 12 feet that day. Water's coming down from the sky. The winds are over 100 miles per hour at that point. People are scampering all over, trying to figure out what to do. We, 25 people, they ran and they got on the train. As the train was coming in, the engineer tried to get them out of town. He could only get about a mile up the road before the water was too high. People were running, getting in boats, trying to get wherever they could 
some people even climbed the trees to get away from the rising floodwaters, which I, which it sounds like this was even scarier of a death because as they were up in those trees, they were forced to listen to their families who were drowning below them. Dear Lord. Massive destruction that day. It was over 200 people. They, they estimate between 200 and 400 people died from that hurricane on that day. And Julia's casket just floated right out to the swamp. <laughs> so to this day, folks still wonder. They, they ask, you know, Frenier is no more. That was the end of Frenier. If you happen to go down there now and you want to visit that swamp, there's a swamp tour there that will take you out on the property and they'll tell you the story. And there's a fantastic seafood restaurant you can try. But aside from that, the community has never been able to rebuild itself. It's never been able to come back. You know, but folks do say while you're there, of course, people have claimed to see the apparition of her. Uh, most notably, though, at night, people say that you can hear people screaming and crying like they're drowning out there in the swamp. And, and some people have claimed to hear her as well, still singing that song, just echoing through there. But when I die, I'll take the whole town with me. Absolutely. I know. Now, now, whether or not that's what she said, you know, this is one of those tales where we started the evening off talking about kind of a game of telephone. And, and this is one that we kind of question with the kernel of truth because we know she's a real person. They actually had an obituary in the newspaper two days after the storm. And there, though, the newspaper told the story about how the folks in town knew the hurricane was hitting while they were at the funeral. It's documented in the newspaper that at four o'clock when her funeral was going on is when the when the wind started picking up. So uh, <laughs> it's a very true story. Now, and whether or not she cursed the town or not, uh, you know, that's up for debate. But uh, she's been painted as a picture of one of, of, of a voodoo priestess who is warning the town. You know, we're destroying our community here by tearing down all these cypress trees or you know, obviously something bad could have happened as well. It depends who you ask down there in the swamp. <laughs> That's an amazing story. Amazing. Uh, I forgot because uh, during the break, I, or uh, rather before the break, I'd asked you to talk about one of the, the, the scarier incidents that happened to you. And then I had to sort of sure. interrupt you because we broke away and I didn't let you finish the story. So this was, uh, I think, a location where you are now in Franklin, Tennessee. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We have a a spot here, you know, I guess, um, yeah, I was talking about just some of the spots gone out that have been more kind of traditional scary, you know, I haven't really, uh, you know, had many experiences. And, and I know when we talked previously, you know, I had joked, I, I still have yet to really come across like a full apparition or something. I've never had an experience like that, you know, as, as you were joking about the, the UAPs and all as well. The, uh, but uh, this particular property here in Franklin, it's an old Masonic hall. And, um, it was built back between like 1860 and 1825. They actually opened the doors to it 1823. So it's they're having they're their bicentennial this year. And it's a three-story Masonic hall. And it was built, I mean, Franklin was found in 1799. So this was like the skyscraper in the middle of this small Southern community. You know, it was like the Wild West back then. And um, Hiram Lodge number seven is the Masonic order that's, they're still there today. The building mm has been nothing but a Masonic hall for 200 years. Wow. Never used for anything else. And um, 
you know, they still they still have their meetings in the building and everything. And, and it's a, as I said, it's three stories. And if you walk in the front doors, it's beautiful, original hardwood floors and exposed brick. And it's kind of been a community center over the years from time to time. And uh, lately it hasn't been as much of a use. You know, the, 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 the number of men that are Masons there has certainly dwindled over the years. And uh, they still have their kind of, and, and forgive my ignorance about the Masonic order, but it's kind of like their ceremonial rooms are on the second floor, right? And, uh, where right. they kind of have all of their, their dealings up there. But on the third floor, uh, that was meant for higher orders of Masons. So all the leaders from all these other lodges in Tennessee would all come and meet at this one. This was kind of a, a main central meeting place, this big three-story building. And anyway, you know, I've heard lots of stories over the years. The, the Masons have ton of, tons of ghost stories from the building. They, they talk about a, a disembodied voice singing in the back of the building, a woman singing old Irish folk tunes they'll hear. Uh, they've talked about uh, hearing the sound of children playing on the stairs there. Uh, I, I've had friend, a friend who is a, a preservationist who's gone and worked in the building, gone to the attics and the basement and all. Yeah, it's part of her job is to help save buildings and go and build. And she's, she's got a ton of stories. And she always warned us even. She said that from time to time, when you're on the second floor, uh, you might all of a sudden come across this just vicious stench will just come up out of nowhere that smells like sweat and blood. Oh. Just, like the room just gets thick with it. And, you know, they, of course, believe that, that this is from the time when the Masonic Hall was used as a field hospital. You know, I mentioned earlier after the Battle right, of Brandon, right. we had 10,000 people who died, went missing, and wounded. And, and this was one of the main hospitals. And, and apparently that's left quite the mark there where people often complain about the heavy anxiety. But, you know, I've been in the building a few times, and, and, and I, was, I was frequently told about these stories. But, uh, you know, they took me up to the third floor one evening. I had never been up there. It, it was kind of... It, not that it was off limits or anything, but they kind of have the spots where they like to show visitors. And uh, one day I was fortunate enough, I, I just went in the evening with my friend who was working on the property. And she's working to create the grant to help, help you know, renovate, or excuse me, preserve the property, if you will. Mm-hmm. And uh, we decided, she says, well, you know, if you've been upstairs, let's go upstairs to this this building. We went up there and she's kind of describing just some of the things. Man, I tell you, it's it's the first place I have ever been where as soon as we entered it, it was like I just got kicked in the chest. It felt like just the amount of anxiety that came over me entering this room. And there wasn't even anything there. It felt like I, I came somewhere where people did not want me. Oh, wow. Overcome with just that feeling of, of get out. And, Man, I, I tell you, Richard, I, I don't really like, I, I, again, I go to a lot of these places, but I, I didn't last five minutes up there, and I have not been back since then. And um, I don't scare easily. I, uh, again, I've you know, been to Waverly, been to all these haunted places, but I, I have no intention ever. I've never felt something quite as tangible as I did in that Masonic Hall and uh, being on that third floor. So it's a, did it's you a really smell the bl- property. Did you smell the blood and the sweat? You know, I never, I never got the smell at all. But it's one of the stories that's been told a lot. Uh, you know, my friends that she's been up there with it. The Masons talk about it because they will. It's in the room where they have their ceremonies on a regular basis mm. when they'll get that. So it's, wow. uh, it, it's interesting. It's, it's an interesting place. I can only imagine the characters who have been in and out of this building over the two hundred years as well that might still be lingering. 
Uh, we're coming up on a break here, so I want to start this story and, and uh, finish it on the other side. But um, it's going back to New Orleans again, the French Quarter. Uh, a vampire, Jacques Saint-Germain? Oh, yes. Oh, Jacques. Yeah, well, then, I, then I'll tee it up for you. You know, there's a uh, – the French Quarter, it's, it is just ripe with stories. Uh, you cannot uh, – again, this is one of the places – Anywhere you go, you are going to get stories. And they are old stories that are built up on top of old stories, right? Uh, and there's this one particular corner down in the French Quarter where it's like, if you look in one direction, you're a block away from the house that's uh, Madame LaLaurie, which was the, the infamous uh, uh, Creole uh, elite or Creole elite, Creole queen, if you will, um, who they found the horrific scene of violence where she had she's doing uh, um, torturing enslaved people in her attic and uh, and that's become known as the haunted house there but if you look the next block you know you you look down and you see the old Ursuline convent is just a block away from that and Ursuline convent is notorious because they say the first vampires to come to North America lived up on the third floor of this convent which is a whole other story in and of itself and then if you kind of look at the, the, the block in the next direction you've got several Several stories there about about a uh, about a story of the the trunk murders that happened back in the 1920s that were purportedly caused by a paranormal spirit getting you know a man feeling overcome that that he had to murder his wife, right? But that's a lot of paranormal stuff. Paranormal I mean, stuff crammed into one block. Um, okay, we'll we'll pick up on that when we come back and we'll get into the. Uh, the story of the vampire of the French Quarter. Brendan Schecksneider, the host of Southern Gothic, the podcast, is with us on Coast to Coast AM. All right, welcome back. Brandon Schecksneider is with us, audio engineer, storyteller, the host of Southern Gothic, the podcast. And you were telling us about the vampire of the French Quarter in New Orleans. Are we talking about an actual vampire? I believe so. Yeah, New Orleans has quite the reputation for vampires, doesn't it? It's uh, it's got that old European charm, and uh, uh, this gentleman Jacques Saint Germain, he's believed to be one of them down there. You know, and I had mentioned this kind of location uh, where he is. The, the French Quarter is notorious for it, and uh, there's a beautiful building on this street corner. You know, where all this paranormal activity had, and it's it's an old corner building. Uh, it's symmetrical with with the doors right on the corner. So it's probably a shop at some point. And there's these big, beautiful red doors, uh, and it has the, the tall windows that are symmetrical on both sides. And, and on the second floor balcony, two of these windows have actually been bricked over, and they say it's because of this vampire and what had happened in the building back uh, back right at the end of the 19th century. A, a gentleman by the name of Jacques Saint-Germain, as you said. So... Uh, this is a, a, a time when New Orleans was kind of in a, in a bit of change, right? Because following the Civil War, we had a, a shifting of, of financial ability in the city. A lot of people, uh, you know, lost a lot of money at that point in time. So the kind of the Creole elite were moving out of the city. And, and the French Quarter was kind of falling a little downhill into disrepair. And this gentleman came in town. He's, he's, he came from France, came to New Orleans from France. And he just exuded charm. He's kind of that classic vampire that that has just all the looks, all the all the wealth. Handsome. He's middle aged. He seems to have this mastery of just languages and art, and a very charming individual, right? And nobody realizes at that point in time or really suspects 
much of anything about him, but he kind of becomes involved in the local social scene for years and, and, and just kind of goes around and he's welcomed into town uh, with fairly open arms. And he moves into this property and but he doesn't bring anything with him to the property. He, he has everything brought in from the city itself. Uh, he just has this one uh, this one portrait on the wall of a gentleman by the name of Comte Saint Germain, which which uh, some of y'all might be familiar with. It. It's a he's a, a an old um, excuse me, I believe it was a 17th century. Uh, he was a a a, um, a friend of Louis the uh, 15th. The Comte was right, a friend and servant who's huh. well known. And and Jacques Saint Germain believed that or told everyone that he was a descendant of this individual that had been part of the court. And so Jacques Saint-Germain, he would have these giant parties well-known through town, invite everyone in, and everybody wanted to be friends with him because he's this charming European man that seemed affluent, had all this money, all of this. And people would come to the parties, and they would last all night, all into the morning and everything. But everybody started to note throughout the parties that, of course, Jacques Saint-Germain didn't partake in any of the food or the booze while they were there. And nobody really took too, you know, nobody worried too much. They started to kind of joke about it. There's a little bit of mystery, you know, as to why he would do this or not. But he was such just a charming individual that just had these stories and just had this this ability to just make people love him. That, that the reputation just kind of got away. But eventually, one night, this all comes to an end. He had had a large party there uh, in the house. And everybody had left, and it's kind of the early hours of the morning down there in the French Quarter. And folks are walking down the street as the sun's coming up. And all of a sudden, from one of those upstairs windows in Jacques Saint-Germain's house, a woman comes crashing out of the window and comes falling onto the ground in the French Quarter below, screaming and trying to get away. And she's running and she's bloodied up and everything. And, of course, some policemen down in the French Quarter, they stop her and they want to know what's going on. And she's just frantic at this point, screaming and crying. And something and she was just involved in this just vicious assault. And she begins to describe the fact that she was there with Jacques Saint-Germain. And, of course, what did he try to do? He tried to bite her neck and tried to mm-hmm. drink blood. Well, you know, the police officers, they don't believe her, of course. You know, here's this, uh, this is one of the rich guys here in town. And he's charming and everybody loves him. She must have gotten drunk. Who knows what was going on at that party, right? But uh, they figure they better go over there to the property and, and, and they better ask Jacques a little bit about, you know, what what just happened. And Jacques answers the door and, and, and he agrees to come down to the station later that day and he'll make a statement. Well, they take the woman down, uh, and Jacques, of course, you know, he never shows up. <laughs> Why would he, right? So later that night, the police, they come. They come to the front door. They knock on the door, and they realize, of course, Jacques is no longer there. So they enter the property, and they go inside. And they kind of dig around, and they realize that in this property, he, he doesn't have anywhere to sleep. He doesn't have a, a lot of these kind of classic things. But they go down, and they see in the wine cellar that there's all these bottles of wine down there. But they look a little eerie, so they open one of them up, and you know what's inside, right, Richard? Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, it's blood, of course. It is blood wine right there. And this is when they all realize exactly who Jacques Saint-Germain must be. But nobody ever saw him. 
again in New Orleans. So if you go down there to the French Quarter and you see this property, like I said, they, they bricked over two of the windows on the property, and they believe that that was to keep the evil inside. That's why Ooh. those windows have been bricked over. I never drink wine. All right. (laughs) We can't talk about Louisiana without welcoming our good friend Cornelius to the program. Cornelius, how are you, buddy? And and, uh, Richard, how y'all doing? Great. Thank you. Well, Brandon, I've heard your name mentioned during politics and stuff of Sheck Snyder, so I don't know if you're related to him. I'm, <laughs> I'm sure I'm we're all kids somehow. We're all, yeah, I figured you're all related. I went to a school, uh, Alexander Senior High School, with a St. John Romain. So I don't know uh-huh. if he was a vampire or anything like that. But um, I was just telling Donna to call screener, Richard, and I got to commend you on your music tonight. And when you had Lamar... Uh, Hicks on, I got a hold of him. So that was a great interview. I'm still standing. But my question for you, Brandon, they call me the God Guns of Gold Man, the Bible Bullets and Beans Man here in Alexandria, Louisiana. If you go to YouTube, type in Cornelius Lawson White, you'll see at our Alexandria City Council meeting that we had here August the 8th, 2023, while I'm speaking, you'll hear like a demon-like voice that's trying to speak over me. So it's strange that we have some type of demon or ghost inside our city council meeting and stuff. And I don't know if you've ever been to the Clint uh, Kent plantation here in Alexandria, Louisiana. It's supposed to have some ghosts or hauntings or demons or something like that in there. So we welcome you to Alexandria, Louisiana from Franklin, Tennessee. So God bless you, Richard, and God bless coast to coast. Thank you, Cornelius. I'm going to check out that YouTube video. I want to hear these. Well, do I want to hear these demon voices? I don't know. I'm kind of torn. <laughs> Maybe I don't. Maybe I don't. Uh, the plantation that he mentioned, uh, Brandon, have you been there in Alexandria? No, I, you know, I've been to Alexandria before, but I've not been to that plantation. But uh, that that area right there was very heavily. They, they say more millionaires lived down there prior to the Civil War than lived in New York. All those plantations, so it certainly has some history there. All right, let's say hello to uh, Templar Tom is in Utica, New York. Templar Tom, welcome to Coast. I'm absolutely, thank you, Richard. I'm absolutely amazed at uh, at that lodge in Tennessee being around for 200 years, especially in the same building. They must have had real masons building that. Um, we, yeah, I mean, real Mason, Mason theory, going by the book of King Solomon's Temple. We have a lot of, uh, uh, up here in New York, we were like ground zero for the uh, development of Freemasonry in the United States. But uh, even here, uh, 200-year-old lodges and Knights Templar commanderies are relatively rare. We just celebrated our 200th anniversary and the Friday the 13th celebration at the same time at City Hall here the other day. And, uh, and we were founded by DeWitt Clinton uh, on February 8th, uh, 2023. So we share a bir- basically a birth year with that Tennessee outfit. And I've got to congratulate them um, on that longevity. But getting them going down there. Hey, one thing I did want to ask as well. Um, how did you find the guys who took you for the tour? 
they were just regular guys, right? You didn't you didn't find them any. Did you find did you find them regular guys, or did you find them odd or anything like that? I mean, with that yeah. uh, that blood no. and sweat and. No, it was regular folks down there. You know, I mean, it's it's people who are just, uh, as you know, this is just folks in the community here that are Masons there, you know. It's just regular guys. Um, you know, I know a couple just from being around town. Uh, the person who actually brought me in, she is someone, she's a preservationist here. So she is actually working with the lodge. Uh, you talk about the longevity. You know, it is currently, the building itself is 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 in danger of needing so many repairs. So, you know, it's currently in a flux state of them trying to figure out how to do a lot of projects to make sure that that building is around longer. So uh, I actually had the preservationist, the one that invited me in, because they were trying to drum up a little bit of publicity so more folks would come and help us save the building so we can see a, a few more years out of it. Templar Tom, thank you for the call. Uh, we just have time, I think, for one more story. And I know this was the, the, the subject of a recent um, Gothic uh, Southern Gothic podcast, The Tragic End of the Steamboat Sultana. Can you tell us about sure. that? Oh, absolutely. You know, that was a horrific tale right there. This this was uh, obviously the South Steamboats were quite the rage, right? It, it was something, it, it transformed the early South because uh, what happened was a lot of times the Mississippi River and all, you could only go one way on a river when you were traveling. Right before trains and everything, you only go one way. And, it could, and when steamboats were developed, all of a sudden, just commerce took off down here. And and obviously, the Mississippi River and all its tributaries and everything they were uh, they 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 were filled up with these steam powered steamboats go back and forth. And uh, on this particular steamboat called the Sultana, it was it was quite dangerous traveling by steamboat. But after the Civil War ended. This steamboat was going on down the river, and, of course, they're trying to make money. This is a capitalist endeavor, right? Uh, they want to make cash, and they get on down there, and they they realize that there are some local POWs that have been released to go back up north, right? And so they decide to cut a deal with the captain. There's a, there's a quartermaster for the Confederate Army there who's going to let these guys go. And they're going to cut a deal with them to, to get back up home north. And, and the, the captain of the Sultana decides, well, you know, this isn't too bad of an idea. Of course, I'll take your money and bring you home. The U.S. government was going to pay per head, per officer, per enlisted guy. And in the process of doing that, though, he started counting up how much cash he's going to make. And he decided to let essentially eight times as much capacity as he really was allowed uh -oh. on the steamboat. Exactly. So uh, you already know that disaster is waiting to happen. This was a dangerous way to travel to begin with, right? Because you're talking about coal and fire on a boat to turn that turbine and move it up the river. And, and, and just as sure as you can see the issue, we had men. Men were on the deck, sleeping on the deck. It was filled to the brim. There's a, a, a famous picture of the Sultana, of all these men, and the, the ship literally drooping into the water as it takes off. But these guys have been in a POW camp. You know, they're, they're used to this, these horrific conditions, and they're just ready to get home. They're not going to turn it down. Well, unfortunately, this tragic accident happens. In the middle of the night, the Sultana, something happens with one of the boilers. It is very likely there was a recent repair that was made, and they probably tried to cut a corner to stay on schedule. Uh, the, the boiler, it goes up in flames. There's a giant explosion on board. 
and about half the men are killed almost instantly, and the rest of them are left in the cold water in the middle of the night to try and make their way home. So it's a a horrific, grisly death, if you can imagine. These are men who finally see the end of the war, end of the Civil War, and they're almost home. And then they're faced with this right here. And, uh, Mm. of course, this is one of those stories that if you're down there uh, where that happened, uh, folks say that you can still see that phantom steamship just floating at night because after it acts after the after the accident of course it's on fire they lost control of steering the ship and everything right and then then burning hulk of mass just kind of steered right in to the edge of the banks of the river right there and, and people say wow you'll see that sometimes at night did they claim you can hear the voices of the men in the river i have heard that as well those men cry yeah uh, you know they were grabbing onto whatever debris they could to get away and 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 you know purportedly folks were coming down from memphis and everything trying to save them and help them but yeah this was you're talking over 600 men were in the water screaming for help so those echoes are absolutely something uh, that that follows that phantom steamship uh how do people sign up for the ghost tour in franklin absolutely yeah if you guys go to franklinwalkingtours.com uh, you can come on down. Now, they do tours all year round, but right now in October, you know, seven nights a week, we have tours. Uh, I do the tours on Saturday night through Halloween. I, I just kind of do some seasonal work with them. So if you want to come down on a Saturday night or, or on a 7 p.m. or 8.45 p.m. and you use the code GOTHIC10, you can actually get 10% off. You can come on the tour with me. It's franklinwalkingtours.com. The tour is called the Grim and Ghostly Tour. Uh, and if we want to stream the uh, the podcast, uh, we go to southerngothicmedia.com or I guess wherever you find your podcasts, right? Absolutely. Yeah, come visit us on the website, southerngothicmedia.com. We're on YouTube, uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, all those places you might listen to your podcast. And uh, what's coming up on the uh, on the podcast? Sure. Well, we are about to do uh, the 13 nights leading up to Halloween. We're going to do all these short stories uh, every night, come out with a brief little 10-minute episode just to kind of get everybody in the spirit. We call them campfire stories, a lot of small urban legends and all. Uh, And then on Halloween, we're going to release an episode from down in Arkansas. Apparently, there was a a knife fight at the old state capitol that continues to uh, have some echoes and apparitions that, that still haunt the place. So we'll be covering that. Fantastic. Brandon, great talking to you again. You're a tremendous storyteller. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Richard. It's always a blast hanging with you. My pleasure. All right. For George Norrie, George Knapp, Lisa Lyon, Stephanie Smith, Tom Danheiser, Dan Galanti, Michael Cozio, Donna Walker, Chris Burroughs, Tim Banal, and Sean Latasseur. I am Richard Serrett. Thank you for your ears and your voices, your beautiful voices. Until next time, live from Athens, God willing, so long for now.